0: Welcome to Technovation, I'm your host, Peter High. Before we get to our interview, I want to extend a heartfelt thank you as we celebrate 600 episodes of Technovation dating back to our beginnings in November of 2008. Thank you to all of our guests who've generously given their time, sharing their insights on the changing technology landscape, our team for putting this podcast together each week, and importantly, you, our listeners, for joining us each week and supporting us along the way. Whether this is your first episode with us or your 600th, thank you for joining us. If you enjoy the content, I encourage you to subscribe to Technovation on your podcast platform of choice and share it with your friends and colleagues who may find it of interest as well. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our 600th episode of Technovation featuring an interview with bestselling author, Seth Godin. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Seth Godin. Seth is many things that defy easy categorization. He's an idea machine, a legendary marketer. He's also the author of 20 best-selling books, including The Purple Cow, All Marketers Are Liars, Permission Marketing, Unleashing the Idea Virus, and his latest book, The Practice Shipping Creative Work. Seth's blog comes out daily, and it has more than 7,000 posts and more than a million readers. He's also the host of a podcast, Akimbo, which is also the name of his learning platform, which includes his Alt-MBA program. And this is not an exhaustive list of his activities, but it should give you an idea of his many creative outlets. But first, a word from our sponsor, QuickBase, and the company's chief executive officer, Ed Jennings. QuickBase is a low-code application development platform focused on citizen automation. And Ed wanted to share how the company helps organizations democratize automation. Ed, over to you.
1: At QuickBase, our mission is to unlock the potential of organizations to adapt and innovate at speed. We do this by empowering business technologists within organizations to leverage low-code, no-code, to visually build their own applications, click and drag, integrate across their existing systems, and eliminate manual and clumsy processes by writing their own workflow automations. As we see more technology responsibility shifting to the business, Here are the top three ways that CIOs can unlock the potential of their own businesses to adapt and innovate faster. One, empower a culture of innovation where every member of the team feels responsible for building and innovating digital solutions. Two, build a practice of citizen automation in your company. Build our governance frameworks and communities of practice. And three, equip the team with the right citizen automation tools. My name is Ed Jennings, and I'm the CEO of QuickBase. I look forward to sharing how we've helped over 5,000 enterprises mature their citizen automation programs.
0: And now on to the interview. Seth, welcome to Technovation. It's a pleasure to speak with you today.
2: Well, thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. Showing up regularly and doing a podcast isn't easy and I would love to congratulate and encourage people who are doing it because it's generous work. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, if I may, Seth, uh, I, I just read through a little bit of the things that you do. Uh, and I wonder if you're on an airplane or somehow uh, otherwise meet a stranger uh, and the person next to you, if the, that, that person, that stranger asks you what you do. How do you describe what you do?
2: Well, I used to meet people on airplanes all the time. That's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> right. I haven't been on a plane in a couple of years and I'm not getting back on a plane. Um, but the shortest version is I'm a teacher. Uh, you mentioned Akimbo, which is an organization I started, I don't run it anymore. I don't own it. Uh, but Akimbo is a learning platform. I write my books not to chop down trees or to make royalties. I write them because it's a way of teaching. And I started as a teacher when I was 17 in the Northwoods of Ontario. And it's the thing that lights me up.
0: Hmm. Well, I I want to talk about some of the lessons. There's a lot of great teachings in your latest book, The Practice. Um, One of the things you've noted is that there was one of the inspirations behind the book was a quote by the sculptor Elizabeth King, which reads, process saves us from the poverty of our intentions. Uh, I wonder if you could just describe your interpretation of that quote and why you found it inspirational.
2: Yeah, it's everything. And after I read it, I Googled it to figure out where it came from, and two different people took credit for it. And then I dug and I dug and I'm proud to say Elizabeth is now a friend. Um, If you get a chance to see her documentary, it's stunning. This is a a woman who takes six months or a year to make a magical work of art. Uh, What does the quote mean? It means this, on a good day, a great day, all of us are capable of doing something with a little bit of magic in it. And if you wait... For those days, you will probably never produce the work you are capable of. The purpose of process is to help us on the days we don't feel like that. Process causes flow. Flow doesn't cause process.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And you, by the way, you talk a lot about the parallels with art. You raise art, uh, and you you define it rather broadly. In fact, you talk. The book uh, talks about three foundations of art: curiosity, generosity, and connection. And the importance of that. And again, you, you're saying art, not as a sculptor, not as a painter necessarily, though you, that certainly would apply, but as a creator, which is essentially uh, um, the element that you're talking about in this book. Talk a bit about the, the intersection of those those ideas.
2: So, you know, the magic of visual art, Clement Greenberg pointing out that once there's a frame, something's got to be in the frame, is we can see it from afar. We can witness it. It is There is a marketplace around it, which helps us identify the ones that are, quote, successful. We can learn a lot from visual art, but I refuse to say that that's all the art there is. It's certainly a work of art to make an opera, but it's also a work of art to be in palliative care and to sit next to somebody who might only have a week to live and help that person feel seen and secure. Uh, If you just read the manual, if you just make sure their blood pressure is okay, that's not important what's important is the humanity of showing up to do something that might not work to do something of connection to do something that matters and what better reason to be alive than that i mean the purpose of our day is not to acquire more junk and put it in a storage unit the purpose of our day is to be in community and to make things better by making better things and so there's no name for that so i decided to call that art
0: and in a related uh, topic, you talk about how uh, doing what you love is for amateurs, but loving what you do is for, for professionals. And um, talk about that and, and also the process of seeking joy in the work that you do as an important element to it.
2: Yeah, these, these are great questions. So, you know, if we think about um, this myth of authenticity on the internet, that you should just act like you feel like in the moment, hold nothing back. People don't want you to be authentic. They don't. They want you to be consistent. They want you to keep your promise. They want, you know, if I go to see Ricky e. Lee Jones in concert and she's having a really big bad day, I will not feel better if she expresses how bad a day she is and doesn't sing. I would like her to be the best version of Ricky e. Lee Jones. Thank you very much. And so, what it means to be a professional is you make a promise and you keep it. And the best way to make a promise is to have a practice, is to have a process, is to be able to say, This is the regiment that I use to create uh, a space where I can be the best possible version of myself when I need to be. Mm -hmm.
0: You also talk about finding your smallest viable audience, which as you point out, is actually easier today than ever before. Uh, and then understanding your genre and then exploring what it means to make magic in, small, in the small and then doing it again. There's a lot there, but I wonder if you can yeah. talk a bit about the magic points, but unpack the how those, those concepts work together, please.
2: Yeah, there, there's so much I could write a whole book about it. Um, <laughs> people push back on all of these things. The first one is, the smallest viable audience. You know, The internet is the first medium that wasn't invented to make marketers happy. TV exists to run TV ads, radio exists to run radio ads, but that's not why they built the internet. The internet, you can't reach everyone on the internet. Still to this day, you can reach more people with a Super Bowl ad or sponsoring the World Cup than you can reach with any single thing on the internet. But the internet is the best micro medium ever developed it is really good at reaching someone, not everyone. So once you decide to reach someone, well, now you get to pick which someone and you can make it just for them. So I like to compare the monkeys with Bob Dylan, right? So the monkeys were, for a time, the most famous popular group of their kind because they were on TV every week. And yet... It's been a long time since anyone talked about the monkeys, whereas Bob Dylan regularly gets booed off stage. Bob Dylan regularly veers one way or the other. Bob Dylan had his biggest hit last year. And the difference is Bob Dylan is for someone and the monkeys were trying to be for everyone. And once you can figure out who your someone is, you're on the hook. Because if you don't please them, now you've really screwed up.
0: And and I know you've advised a number of entrepreneurs and friends on these sorts of topics. To what extent is is um, when somebody's at the beginning of their journey and they think about who they wish to address? To what extent is it important to lock in on that as opposed to be a bit malleable and and change direction as you go, depending upon the feedback that you're getting. Um, I recognize, of course, that you know going north and then going south may be counterproductive. You will end up exactly in the same place that you began. But starting north and then recognizing, wait a second, actually my pathway may be a little bit northeast as a result of some of that feedback. Maybe, maybe a uh, uh, you know an important pivot necessary through the process. Talk talk a bit about that searching, if you would.
2: I think it's a great analogy. You know, and there's the brain teaser about. Uh, what happens when you're a mile away from the North Pole, because going north is a very different thing there. You actually do need to go north in order to get to where you might want to go, because there's a mountain in between. And that mountain is, I think, essential for people who are starting out. You don't get from where you are to mass market success, where you are to cultural changer, where you are to uh, successful entrepreneur by going straight there. You you know nintendo was a playing card company they learned a lot by being a playing card company that enabled them to eventually become the home of mario brothers right that at the beginning particularly if you're bootstrapping trying to do this with funds that don't come from a bank but come from your customers your original customers are people who are willing to pay up front to get what you have to offer they are a very special group of early adopters people who know they have a problem and then You're able to build the confidence, the skills, uh, and the rest of it to go sideways, and there all those other people are. But I think it's a mistake to say uh, everyone is our customer, and you can pick anyone and we're anyone. Mm -hmm. Those two things don't constitute a strategy
0: and you've talked a lot about a related concept that that has meant a lot to you i know is is the power of constraints i've heard you talk about the analogy of growing up playing hockey on ponds without uh without walls to them and it's just not hockey if that's the case you need the the, the boards to be able to set limits and uh you know, determine direction in some ways um and a lot of what you're trying what what you're describing is introduction of constraints. If you're if you're trying to do please everyone, you're likely to please no one, but if you are really focused on, you know, the the people who you really can touch and move, well then I then you're on to something. Talk a bit about this whole notion of constraint as an important uh, aspect for for people who are who are creators.
2: Yeah, so whining uh is fairly counterproductive. But acknowledging your constraints and complaining about them now and then uh, is a good way to figure out where the boards are because that's where you can bounce the puck off of. So you're starting a company and you don't have $50 million worth of venture funding. Okay, there's a whole bunch of things you can't do. But it also means you don't have to deal with a board and accountants and everything else. And you can change your mind really fast. There are constraints for you, but there are also constraints for that company that raised $50 million. And one of the challenges that uh, our overheated venture-backed economy has right now is that many of the people who are charged with building important entities have had all their constraints removed because they've got so much funding it's not a problem well i was at yahoo when yahoo had very few constraints and yahoo's gone because they had very few constraints
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you about uh, the concept of imposter syndrome or or faking it till you make it a related concept to this. I think a lot of high achievers, especially, you know, feel as though when they're in the different parts of their journey, uh, almost awkward with a lack of expertise as they're pushing from something that is that's that's novel to something where they have greater and greater levels of experience and i know in a lot of your 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 work um, you are pushing people to get past that and sort of, you know, get get through that so, to, such the, that they have some kind of muscle memory that they're building uh, and the skills they're building along the way as well. Uh, this this, t- this concept, for whatever reason in conversations I've been having of late, has been coming up a, a lot, the whole notion of imposter syndrome and how to deal with it. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts there.
2: So let's divide it into two parts. Uh, if you are hired to do heart surgery and you are not a doctor, you're going to kill somebody and you're going to go to jail. I am not in favor of that. If we're talking about skill, go get skill. Skill is a choice. On the other hand, if we're talking about the feeling you get when you are leading, of course you feel like an imposter because you are one. You are one because you are doing something that's never been done before. Not by you, not by anyone. And we need to embrace that. If you don't feel like an imposter, when you are doing a thing you think of as leading, you're not trying hard enough. And I think we need to to make sure those two things diverge. Let's get real skill among people who we elect, among people who cut us open with a scalpel, among people who are driving the bus. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to leadership, bring me an imposter every time.
0: (laughs) You also talk, I mean, there's a, there are a number of lessons that you have that are also about elbow grease to some extent. You talk about how writer's block is a fear of bad writing and that it's really just bunk. There's no such thing as writer's block, that in many ways you need to work past that. Talk talk about that concept. What what are you? No sense. This, is, this is an actual writer's block. I, I
2: made this on my Glowforge on one side. I don't know if you can see it. Says, I can see that. Yeah, very well. There's no such thing as writer's
0: block. It says on the uh, block.
2: I worked with... Um, Isaac Asimov did a project with him. He published 400 books. I'm like, Isaac, how do you publish 400 books? What do you do about writer's book? And he walks me to the living room in his little apartment. And he says, see this manual typewriter? I sit in front of it every morning for six hours, whether I feel like writing or not. And I don't have to write good stuff. I just got to type. But his subconscious understood that if he's going to type anyway, it might as well bring its best. and that is." such a profound truth nobody has the inability if you're physically able to move your fingers nobody you can type bad stuff all day so you don't have writer's block what you have is self-censorship and a fear of being judged for your writing you have a fear of bad writing and so let's call it what it is and the way you get over your fear of bad writing is you do more bad writing and sooner or later good lighting shows up
0: but how do you um I'm wondering, Seth, as somebody who is prolific, somebody who writes daily, Um, not every day is your best writing, uh, but you talk about getting your work out into the world. And how do you, and you've also, I've heard you speak eloquently about, you know, the, inti- the intimidation in some ways of a book that's done incredibly well, because there's this feeling, it's like the, you know, like what we hear about uh, all sorts of different, you know, musical acts that they have a, a great first album and it's the sophomore slump because they, they're trying to top it and they can't, right? And I think any creative process, there's a degree of that. If you've experienced a modicum of success, all of a sudden, you know, gosh, can I repeat that? And that 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 process can be paralyzing. So, you know, what do you, but part of it, of course, is just getting on and doing it as you say, but is there also a degree to which you, you, um, especially when you're writing for a blog, for instance, a degree of comfort in recognizing that not every day's work is going to be your best work?
2: Well, to paraphrase Steve Martin, half of my blog posts are below average. Um, (laughs) The the problem I have is I don't know which ones. Mm -hmm and more than once many many times i have written a blog in five minutes and said i ah, wish i could do better than this and it became one of my most beloved famous embraced blogs ever and other times i've put 40 hours into a blog post and just crickets so i'm a terrible judge mm-hmm. and you know my friend liz gilbert tells the story after Eat pray love one of the single most uh, powerful popular books of the entire 20th century. She owed a book after that one. And she spent a year of her life writing it. And she brought it to Kinko's to get it copied so she could send it to her editor back when we used to use the mail. And she threw it in the trash. One year gone. Because on one hand, she was freaking out about being judged. And on the other hand, she had enough insight to say, writing a book to top, eat, pray, love is a bad idea. Let me just go write a book I want to write. And good for her because she got the monkey off her back. And for me to blog every day is simple. I'm not going to have a blog tomorrow because it's my best blog ever. I'm going to have a blog tomorrow because it's Friday. And once you can adopt that mindset, all the drama goes away. I spend zero time worrying about whether this blog post is good enough to go next to the other 9,000 blog posts. All I do is I say, Of the blog posts I wrote today, which is the best one to run tomorrow? That's the only question.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask you, uh, you you mentioned uh, creativity is an act of leadership, but you also note that leaders are imposters. And I wonder if you could square those details for us.
2: Well, because to be creative is to be an imposter as well, right? Hi, I'm uh, Susan Rothenberg. Here's a painting of a horse. I like it. Well, but maybe no one else does. So you're acting in that moment when you take our attention and our trust, like you have a painting you're sure we're going to like. But maybe we won't, right? Hi, I'm Peter. I made this podcast. I hope you'll listen to it. You're acting like an imposter. You don't know that it's a podcast worth listening to. You're just doing your best to bring creative work to people who need it.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Talk, talk a bit about also the the... Uh, the differences between skill and talent. You, you go into some depth about that and, and some of the misunderstandings between the two concepts.
2: Yeah. Talent really bothers me. Uh, I think that there are talented basketball players because they're really tall. I think that there are maybe people who are actually born with perfect pitch, but not many. Mostly, we're talking about skill and skill can be learned. Some people have an easier time learning a skill than others, but skill can be learned. And my evidence is this. If we look at kids in uh, mainland China, they're three times more likely to have perfect pitch, which means that I say, what note is this? And they know what it is, or they can tell me a note. Uh, Three times more likely than kids in the United States. So therefore, you would argue that they're born with it. However, Second-generation uh, Chinese kids born in the United States who grew up in a house that speaks English are just as likely to have perfect pitch as kids who aren't Chinese in the United States. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that perfect pitch comes from your parents speaking Chinese when you're a baby, because it's a, a language that's often sung, not from your genes. And when I was in high school, uh, my English teacher wrote in my yearbook You are the bane of my existence and you will never amount to anything. And I took one English class in college. I am not a talented writer. Instead, I decided the skill was worth learning. And this is powerfully optimistic because what it means is unless you need to dunk a basketball, uh, you can learn it. And I think that's great.
0: That's very interesting you you write in so many different forms and for so many different mediums um, how, how do you how do you decide when something is is book worthy uh, books right. are incredibly long processes i've written three myself um, it, they take they take you know a year or more uh, than the production that goes on behind it the support that's necessary following it etc um you know it can be an exhausting process How do you determine that something is worth your time, given the many different things that you do do and could do with your time other than that?
2: Yeah. So for 175 years, a book was also associated with income. And so a lot of people who had an idea said, this is a book because I want to do this for a living. That's not true anymore. So what's left is a book is an artifact that carries with it certain cultural energy. Some things deserve that. Other things deserve the much bigger audience that a blog post will get. Other things deserve the much bigger emotion that a video will get. Uh, I mean, So for me, I've been playing in media for many, many years. I have a hunch about what fits in what bucket. I used to wake up in the morning 25 years ago and say, I need to make a living today. What should I write a book about? I haven't said that in 20 years because... It's too, too difficult a way to make a living. And I only write a book as a last resort.
0: That's true. Are you working on one now?
2: Nope.
0: Nope.
2: <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been a few years and there may, who knows? I'm in no hurry. I don't feel any pain about not having a book.
0: How do you uh, determine what mediums you you work through? You, you have the Alt MBA, uh, which you, which you developed in twenty fifteen as you point out, is run by others now, but some, but you're still very much affiliated with. You've done courses with Udacity and LinkedIn Learning. Um, you've You know, you've been promiscuous, if you will, across a variety of different mediums through which you teach. So you are a teacher as you began, the first thing you mentioned, in fact, in describing yourself. And now there is just a world of ways in which you can teach. Is part of this sort of experimenting with various different platforms to understand what works or what you enjoy most?
2: Yeah. I mean, I know what works the best for learning, Mm -hmm. which is cohort based, asynchronous, uh, emotionally driven interaction. And that's what the Akimbo workshops do. That's why I built them, not because they were a good business, but because it was my uh, stake in the ground to say, this is how it should be done. But I also know that my LinkedIn learning class in three weeks reached more people than all Akimbo workshops put together in five years. So at some point as a teacher, you got to go where people are. And I understand the constraints of that medium. And if I can't embrace the constraints, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working with Morty and his team, it's like, oh, these are the constraints. I'm going to do a, a short workshop in this format. Will it change lives the way the marketing seminar does? No way. But that's not what people are asking for it to do. And so you show up with the right thing in the right place for the right person.
0: And, and it, it, um, at what point in your life did, did joy and fun become orienting principles for you. I mean, when somebody is 22 and just graduated from university, they don't have the luxury, in many cases, to have those as being orienting principles. So, part of it is gaining experience. Part of it's gaining wherewithal, uh, an ability to say no, which is much more difficult earlier in one's career as it is uh, as you gain some experience and knowledge and wisdom, and, and frankly, learn who you are. Um, talk a bit about that that seeking process and how you advise others uh, in that.
2: I decided to find joy in the constraints and i think it's quite possible maybe this is just a 61 year old with nostalgia that i had more joy when i was struggling than i have now because the constraints the running out of money the nearly missing payroll the no one knows who you are the feeling like not just an imposter but a fraud the being wrong about fundamental issues uh all of those things, if you look at them the right way, are like waves are in surfing. And I decided to, to really love that ride. And as I have succeeded and earned a reputation, most of those constraints have been lifted. And so I have to find new challenges to find joy in. However, I am fully aware that I'm making them up. Whereas the ones when I was 24 were real. Yeah. These are like, oh, I built that constraint for myself, and now I'm going to dance with it.
0: To what to what extent, is, though? As as you as you reflect on that, is seeing the end of the movie? That is knowing that now you are a success. You can kind of wander the world as a seeker of ideas and and focus on the things that interest you most. And you know that people will follow you. You know to those destinations. Is that part potentially part of the reason why, as you look back to when you were struggling and barely making payroll and on the brink of bankruptcy, I know you you've talked about how for eight years you were just like on the knife's edge essentially as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, is is part of it perhaps that you've 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 seen the movie play out for sixty one years?
2: <laughs> well, you know it's interesting because there were some really significant failures along the way that you don't hear me talking about too much. Hmm. And I had just as much joy building those maybe the last few weeks were heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking. Um, so I'm glad that this all worked out in a way that wasn't heartbreaking. But um I guess the purpose of my story is not that everyone has the privilege I had, uh, the benefit of the doubt that I had. What I am saying is, I think you can still make it a choice. And I'm glad I made it a choice. I learned that from my parents. And I know that people with far less, uh, I've seen them in little villages in India or a a farmer named Lucy in Kenya who decided to to make it a choice. These are my constraints. This is my journey. I will choose to find joy in this journey. And if people take away one thing from this, I hope it would be that.
0: I also wanted to ask you about how As someone who writes daily, um, I think what's often intimidating for people who might wish to emulate you is when you begin that process, you have an audience of zero. Uh, You have a head full of ideas potentially, but perhaps not yet enough confidence in those ideas to have validation that people want to read them. And part of I know what you what what you advise is, you know, get out and get started, and get be willing to 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 fail and explore and those sorts of things. But it, it still is a it's a difficult hurdle for a lot of people to overcome uh by putting themselves out there it it feels like a it feels like a risk what what, what sort of advice would you offer to those people
2: well that's a very cleverly constructed trap people have set for themselves because (laughs) if i woke them up tomorrow morning and said uh we're going on live tv in an hour and 10 million people are going to watch what you have to say would that be better? Would that be easier? Would that be something that you wouldn't be complaining about? I think you'd be freaking out. The the good news is you can write what you want and no one's going to read it. What an opportunity. What an opportunity to explore and invent and describe. Go, go, go. This is a privilege. Don't waste it.
0: A, a great, a great insight, a good, good inspiration for those to kind of get off, get off the, uh, the the couch and start writing. Get get to the work that is important. Um, I, you know, in in a in a time where there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic, you are somebody who does write oftentimes with uh, with optimism. And I wonder what what are some of the things that make you optimistic these days?
2: Well, it's funny. Someone uh, called in with a question for my podcast, that's basically saying I was being too pessimistic. We have big troubles. Uh, The combination of uh, carbon, social justice, uh, a worldwide pandemic, uh, capitalism out of control, a Gini index worse than it's been since the Great Depression. Uh, These are real problems. And what I'm optimistic about is the definition of a problem is that it can be solved. If it doesn't have a solution, then it's just a situation. And I would like to believe that all of the things I just mentioned are problems, not situations. And so what I'm optimistic about is that human beings in the last 80, 100 years have invented just about everything that's around us. They've invented all sorts of magic, some horrible things too, but all sorts of magic. And if we can just find a passion for better and we can figure out how to set aside Milton Friedman-like selfishness just long enough to contribute, I'm hopeful that these problems will go away.
0: Well, uh, Seth Godin, you, you write an awful lot about generosity and the importance of it, how spending emotional labor to help someone else uh, is a wonderful thing to do. Thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your schedule to help me and help my audience by sharing what you know. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today.
2: Well, thanks for doing this work. Don't make a ruckus.